Welcome to Off Book, a podcast from The Young Vic, where we have conversations with creatives who have recently inspired us with their work here. It's great to be joined by the theatre maker Zoe Spencer. And Zoe, thank you so much for coming in uh, this afternoon for, to this podcast. You do lo- loads of stuff within theatre, but I suppose you're well known also for your dramaturgy. How did that come about then? How did you one day decide that that's what you were going to become and going to do? I often say to people who ask me that question, or they ask me the question, what is a dramaturg? Um, but uh, I couldn't really say what a dramaturg was, but I could describe dramaturgy. And I suppose my role on the productions where I've been called a dramaturg is all about thinking about what the overall concept, the idea behind the production is, and how that fits and filters through the different elements of production Um, and quite often people think it's a bit like literary management and sort of editing texts or or working with writers but what I do is often well usually with writers who are no longer alive so who can't consult with them (laughs) um, which is probably a good thing because I tend to be quite (laughs) gung-ho what we do but also um, often the editing of a text comes sort of very late in the process Um, often right at the end and even in previews or sort of restructuring um, all around the kind of theatrical idea, the, the the storytelling, the emotional structure. So I suppose it's the dramaturgy is about thinking about the structure of the whole thing in time and space. Um, and in terms of how I ended up doing uh, quite a lot of that kind of work, um, I mean, in lots of ways, directors do that work. I mean, it always gets done in some shape or form. The more conventional the form of theatre, the less it's really thought about because it's sort of a pre-established form and therefore people don't need to kind of reinvent it. Whereas I guess I work on productions where we're kind of trying to reinvent some of the thinking around how that structure works, how the work reaches the audience. Um, But Joe Hill-Gibbons asked me quite a few years ago now uh, whether I'd like to come and be a dramaturg uh, for him... uh, for a workshop with the RSC on Measure for Measure. So he asked to have me instead of one of the actors. So he had one less actor and uh, we did a two week workshop together where we explored Measure for Measure, which we then ended up quite a few years later doing here at the Young Vic. I mean, in many ways, completely different by them because we'd already done a number of other productions um, together by then. But that process kind of made it clear that we that we could really develop a working relationship around thinking around those ideas. Um, and a lot of my work is done from the moment it's decided what play through to the start of rehearsals, sort of first week of rehearsals. And I'm sort of in and out of rehearsal a bit. And then the most of the work is from the kind of first full run through through to press night. And that kind of intensifies over the course of previews. Um, which is so, I suppose, about thinking about the initial ideas and then shaping, working with... Uh, Joe, or um, I work, work with Polly Finley quite a bit as well, um, another director, to think about rehearsal process that might um, enable that way of, of uh, representing the work. Um, and then coming in and working with uh, them and the rest of the creative team in the kind of tech through to preview through to press night process to kind of really pull it all together. And how did that, that start then? I'm, I'm interested, I suppose, if you had a... Did arts play a major role in your childhood or growing up? Or, or books, I suppose, more? Well, it's funny, I always wanted to work in the theatre. From, like, 
I went to see Palfrey the Clown when I was five. Who <laughs> <laughs> did the dramaturgy on that production? Mm, yeah, I <laughs> and, uh, and I was called up on stage, or I suddenly wanted to go up on stage. It's a classic story. I was a relatively shy child, uh, but somehow wanted to go up and I was singled out for some form of humiliation. But I just remember standing there looking out at the audience, could barely see them under the lights, and, um, and just going, this is it. This is, what I'm, this is where I want to be. Uh, so it all started there. Um, and then um, I used to make I used to make up plays with my friends at school that then we would perform in school assemblies. We used to get so much time off lessons. We'd go, we're going to do another school assembly play. So we'd go off to the playground and rehearse. And uh, and I've forgotten this a few years ago as well. But I did all the costumes. I wrote the th- they were like upside down fairy tales where the good character was bad and the bad character was good. Um, so I I think and I I I was always thinking somehow about theatre from a really early age. It was sort of the medium that suited how I imagined, I guess. Um, So it became quite clear quite early on that I wasn't going to be an actor, which is the usual sort of child uh, desire, mainly because I can't learn lines (laughs) until the last possible minute (laughs) or rehearse. And then, uh, it's fine on the night, but it's not much fun for anybody else that I'm working with. Um, But also because I was interested in the whole in the in the way everything comes together and, and I'm interested in what makes people tick and that is kind of central uh, you know kind of question for the theatre really how to live how we live now so what did you do at university so I studied English literature <laughs> although it was a very it was quite free so I mostly studied uh, drama and um, aesthetic philosophy actually I really got into aesthetics and ideas around what art is and that kind of thing and after that, then, how did you kind of break into the, the theatre business? Well, before I went to university, I went and lived in Berlin for for um, a little while, about six months. And there I met a former East German theatre company um, who, and the, the kind of collective uh, called Theater Orna Nama. And I started working with them as a kind of intern. I have various, worked with sort of various different people. I went to see a lot of theatre. And then I went straight back when I finished university and worked in Berlin for a couple of years. Um, and then set up, while I was there, uh, it was much cheaper to live in Berlin than in London. So while I was there, I set up a company in the in the UK, which is sort of like the standard thing that you, that's what people did and were doing. Um, came back uh, to, to Britain, to London, and then really kind of, like sort of Berlin was a city that was at the time full well it still is full of artists but it's uh it didn't even have the government there when I very very (laughs) moved there just after I I first was there um so it was very free and very easy to kind of do stuff but the theatre structures were very formal and rigid and the opposite was kind of the case in London which is the theatre world was more fluid in a way that was was brilliant but the um but financially it was just so much harder to survive so i found it a real kind of really difficult uh so when the opportunity came along to um to to study again um then i did so i did a an ma and a phd and um the thing about that as well was partly from working with this company who told me i think you know in the first couple of weeks that i uh, was there that they had had just a few copies of Peter Brook's Empty Space 
that everybody had read so it was passed around from practitioner to practitioner not necessarily because that was the most amazing book but because if you got hold of it then you should read it and I just thought about all the books about theatre on my shelves that I think probably including that one that I've <laughs> never actually read or thought about and the thing in uh, uh, in um, in Cambridge where I did my PhD is it has a copyright library and it's an amazing space where you can find anything and um and so I suddenly sort of started to appreciate that possibility of just being able to go and find out and research and discover stuff. Uh, so I wanted to kind of um, retur- return to that. But in the process of that, I just start, I, yeah, I sort of started, well, I was doing stuff anyway, but somehow having the split focus really helped me. I, in a way, I wasn't, wasn't thinking about theatre as a career and I wasn't thinking about academia as a career. I was just doing stuff. And then, yeah, so it's really difficult to explain because the, 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 yeah, I did some stuff at the National Theatre Studio and then made a show out of that and yeah, lots of conversations later. I mean, I work, I, the, the PhD that I did was on the Gate Theatre in Notting Hill. Okay. And so mostly what I did was go and talk to people who had worked there at various points. And that was, I feel like that was my theatre training because those conversations were extraordinary training in, in people who are now really at the top of their game looking back on the early stage mm-hmm. of their work and what they were doing and why and why that particular space really mattered so yeah it's hard to I can't kind of define a kind of clear set of uh, points I haven't gone down a standard route into working but what about theater. that time in Berlin then because did that time experiencing European theatre and European style theatre shape and inform your practice and your work back yeah, in London? Yeah, massively. Um, and that what also happened was that I came back to London and didn't know how to make that work in a British context. And basically that set out to kind of work that out for a long time. And actually the other really key thing that happened, which was through The Young Vic, was that um, I did a workshop with a director called Luke Percival and um, he was one of the few if not I think the only international directors who had been written to and invited to come and do a workshop this is like 10 years ago now um, and uh, and he came and he did this extraordinary workshop and he was working a lot in Berlin as an asso- associate at the Chubbin he's actually Belgian and uh, he just said come into rehearsal if you're in Berlin just turn up and you can come and watch I mean it's so different from the British mm-hmm. idea of a closed rehearsal rehearsal room which so I would so whenever I was there for whatever reason um, I'd go and, and and hang out there and I learned such a lot from that process as well which was kind of brilliant what's interesting for me about the theatre in Berlin and which I think isn't always recognised here when people go and see work there is that it has this it has a set of cultural tropes and a set of um, kind of conventions the first time you see an actor do something completely crazy you're like wow that's amazing when you've seen a few productions where an actor's done something very similar in it you go Mm. oh it's a it's a number Mm. um sometimes it's amazing and other times it's not actually that brilliant so you kind of learn the you learn the tricks of a different culture in a way that's really interesting um but also um the thing i think i learned was that what I'm interested in is a form of psychology that's not naturalistic or or even realistic necessarily, or that what my idea of realism is or what I want to see on the stage is the kind of explosion of someone else's mind or their way of looking at the world rather than a kind of consensus about a real location 
and a kind of external representation of, of that. And do you think you're seeing that more and more in British theatre, that kind of influence from the continent? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think I think it's always been here in the British theatre. It's just it's had sort of peaks and troughs. And of course, there's what, what I call, think of as sort of empirical naturalism, like, you know, everybody's in the same place at the same mm-hmm. time kind of uh, location based theatre is very very strong through our kind of the form of our new writing um, culture but even then the most brilliant plays within that culture often explode that form and change it all the time um, but well, I th- on that then do you sort of feel a bit frustrated by very location based theatre you know if you read a stage direction that X arrives from this door they've been walking for this amount of time to get here and they're delivering this line and kind of is that kind of the shackles which you want to free theatre from I think it depends on the work so that's where dramaturgy Mm. comes in I guess which is that if it's that if that's the type of writing it is and that's what's appropriate to it then uh, that's fine I think it's not so much what I would then buy a ticket to go and see um, necessarily but uh, it certainly it has its own coherence I think the thing I'm interested in is the stories that are less coherent, in a way. Well, no, no, that's not quite the right word. I'm interested in systems. Okay, so let's let's scrap all of that, right? (laughs) So (laughs) what I find frustrating about the naturalistic theatre is that it seems to imply that a lot of who we are and how we do it is uh, based on us as individuals. And I'm really interested in the relationship between our individual feelings and and the invisible systems and structures that put us in certain situations in certain places um and the thing that's interesting about the german theater is that it's often got a very clear kind of political sensibility and that's one of the things that gets lost when people go and see the work there and don't understand german because they see the aesthetic the what the sort of cool gesture but not the political point that's underlying it so the volksbühner for example which has just been um I was going to say closed. It's not closed, but there's a new um, artistic director who will take it in a very different direction. I was making the most extraordinary work in the early 90s, and I was first there in the late in the late 90s, towards the end of that sort of golden period. That was born out of an absolute sort of hell frustration at the Berlin Wall coming down and the kind of advent of capitalism, and not not the kind of a new world order, but not the ones that the people in the East who had been fighting for a different future had been hoping for um but it's very pop and you often now it's sort of so ingrained in the theatre culture the kind of gestures of that theatre but they've often been disassociated or divorced from or always almost now uh from that 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 gesture of kind of uh despair actually that that they came out of um so i'm sort of interested in forms that will enable us to reconnect with politics i guess well you mentioned the c word there zoe capitalism uh is theatre inherently a sort of a capital, a capitalist um, structure? You know, do we, is it, because it's quite transactional, I suppose, theatre. Here is the audience, here are the people putting on the show for you. Is there a way that theatre can kind of free itself from capitalism if it's it a, wants to? It's a good question. The, um, uh, my, one of my favourite quotes about theatre, um, which I'm going to slightly mangle, uh, partly because I just sort of have appropriated it for myself it's by a, a scholar called Nick Rideout and he says that uh, theatre is 
sitting in the dark in your leisure time paying to watch other people working under lights <laughs> and it's a kind of takedown of the theater. it couldn't be better i mean but he's i mean he's 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 right i mean he doesn't entirely intend it as a takedown but he's sort of just putting it really boldly like it is um and in the sense of producing something that's repeatable that can be done every night that is going you know bring box office you can see that there is a complicity with um certain kinds of profit orientated structures but then i think of a, sp- a place like the young vic as being very much not exactly in opposition to that but just op- inhabiting a very different territory like the motivation for the collaborations the motivation for making the work the motivation for sharing with an audience are very different from the idea of extracting some kind of profit from it um and of course profit can be figured in a financial way or in all sorts of other ways as well but yeah i think there's but i think there's also things to think about like questions around um artistic ownership change under conditions in which digitization is occurring and which the the rate at which the sharing of ideas uh can happen is speeding up incredibly rapidly I suppose my feeling is that we're very much based on a notion of everything being original or new and that's how marketing operates and and actually often what we're doing is recompositing and responding to and returning. If you look at Shakespeare's plays, I mean, the most extraordinary works of art and they are crammed full of other people's stories (laughs) and sometimes even, you know, know, lots of references to other poems, other other texts and, and so on. So I guess the 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 thing about capitalism is that that interests me is a, a question around human nature and like whether we're driving ourselves into the ground more than um i mean i think theater needs always to find the best form to make itself and whatever financial structure that is it's like take the money <laughs> <laughs> well i think this is a good point for me to, to throw uh, a quote at you which was uh, made by you actually in uh, about world factory which you made at the young vic um a couple of years back which is uh, that it was a piece that recognized that there are no heroes that the political landscape of the past 30 years has elevated myopic self-interest to a dominant cultural value does your work respond to that view then well I'm interested in the way that the more we're told to be individuals and stand on your own two feet and goal set and go for what you want and uh, and look after yourself first. And the peculiar thing is, I wrote that quite some time before Trump was made president. But I feel like I'm sort of like doing You're a soothsayer. some kind of well. I feel like the, the slogans are kind of Trump-like in their kind of self-help the catalyst self-help book nature um but actually the more the more you can inhabit those values the lonelier you get and um i've been working on uh, a whole lot of sort of thoughts around shakespeare and and capitalism and the way that uh capitalism emerges or the way that the representation of capitalism emerges and i've come to really think that a lot of like almost all plays uh, never mind um never mind just shakespeare are often about the tussle between freedom and obligation that we want to be free but absolute freedom is utter isolation and that we need obligation to make ourselves feel have meaning so totalized individualism doesn't work and nor does total total structure and that plays are often wrestling at points where people where those kind of ideas are in tension with with one another and that's kind of like sort of feels like the human condition in fact 
it's like we want to be free <laughs> but we want to be loved <laughs> or cared about or looked after or, you know well that kind of links to uh, World Factory which you made at the Young Vic which was a really fascinating piece it was an interactive piece where the audience was sat on uh, sort of groups of four or five and we had uh, a Chinese factory, uh, textile factory, basically in our hands, and we were we decided on you know the pay, this, the the structure of that factory, the the ethics of that factory, and you really kind of put the audience on the spot there and made them really kind of question capitalism uh, in a theatre setting. Let's talk about that because that's that's really interesting. Is that what you that was your vision from day one for that piece of theatre? Was it? Well. I had a, a conversation in Shanghai with a theatre director called Zhao Chuan it, quite some time ago where he was talking about communism, capitalism, clothing and factories. And I was thinking of the Made in China labels on my clothes and feeling a bit uncomfortable in my skin. And he was talking about uh, Manchester and he'd been to Manchester as a delegate at the Manchester International Festival and he'd seen in a piece of tourist uh, literature the term world factory used, or workshop of the world as we often call it, um, used about the mills in Manchester. And I was really intrigued by this kind of global historical connection. I'd also come to think out of a previous project that was more about climate change, that our real problem is just the sort of aggressive use of resources and the idea of the exploitation of whatever we have to make more or get more uh, might be the thing that is kind of killing us. And I'm quite interested in that, uh, in, in relation to kind of climate change, the notion that we might be killing off our futures. It's sort of a tra- it's like a like a ri- tragedy writ large on a sort of really global scale that all these small gestures that we do are going to cause our, you know, that like Macbeth we'll have no heirs, <laughs> and um, and so that's that's the idea started there. But I work very, um, well, I kind of call it iteratively. So we do a workshop and then another workshop and then get together with some people and have some more ideas and and things emerge out of it so it was always about investigating what does it mean that the factory system that was invented in Britain kind of transferred to China and there was a a, a sense of that capitalism might be in trouble and nothing that's happened in the few years <laughs> while I've been working on it has suggested <laughs> any different really um, but not really to not, not a kind of aim to produce a kind of really clear or um defined message that was about telling people what to think but more a process of wanted to make a show that was a process of investigation that the audience could share in Mm. so we never talked about capitalism in the show I mean audiences often did because you could talk all the way through as you were deciding what to do in your in your in your factory Um, and I was really intrigued and pleased to see that they were immediately taking it into the political sphere and opening it up into bigger questions Um, but we were doing it through a very concrete, immediate set of stories about uh, that were based on on real lives and lots of interviews that we'd that we'd done. Because um, I think the the theatre is a place to encounter that life in a visceral way, and and I'm interested in what these structures are that kind of condition that. But um, but if you just talk about them, if you have a character talk about capitalism. It, it, it sort of just goes over everyone's heads. And it would go over mine anyway. And mine too, but is, is that why you sort of go for participatory, immersive, uh, interactive theatre pieces like World Factory was? Is that, the, is that the best way to, to 
to achieve what you attempted to achieve with Wealth Factory. Yeah, it did. It did come to feel that way. So I'd done a previous piece that had multiple um, options in it, and I swore at the end of it I'd never make another piece of work like that because <laughs> it's. There's so many story routes through that no one ever encounters. <laughs> so it's like so much work and then only a small part of it gets kind of played. And then we made World Factory, which is like exponentially more complicated. <laughs> so there must be something driving that. Um, but I think the, the aim was, the aim of World Factory was to place the audience in the position where the conditions under which uh, a Chinese factory gets run became something that mattered to the audience. So instead of having a description of a Chinese factory where uh, a Western audience might go, oh, I feel so sorry for them, or, you know, so you kind of, di people distance themselves through pity or um, by thinking it's nothing to do with them. Um, or, you know, you get very emotionally in invested, but it's still quite an abstract set of ideas. Whereas if you're if you're uh, in it and you have to make the decisions, then you really pay attention to what the situation is that you might have to make the decision under. And the other thing is if you watch a character uh, make a bad decision, you tend to judge them. And you might be nice in the judgment and go, oh, it's probably because they had a bad childhood. <laughs> or you might go, oh, they're an evil person. But when we're in a situation, we tend to say, oh, but I had to do it because of X, Y, or Z. So I was really interested in putting an audience in the position in which they were kind of saying to themselves, well, we had to sack the workers because of this or this or this, which meant that they could really see the complexity and the difficulty of the situation of being in that world. And th there were themes in World Factory which uh, were about sort of environmentalism and, and the planet. I know that that's something that you care about and it's sustainability within theatre. Something that I sometimes struggle with is that it's not the most sexiest of issues to, to get people to rally around sustainability within, within theatre. Is there a way around that, do you think? How do you get motivated, stay motivated by, by that as an issue, by that as a concept? Well, I suppose I think... It's difficult, isn't it? I mean, I, th I think a, a, there's quite a few plays that I've come across that are about, say, something to do with climate change that have, say, recycling in them. And I do always think that in, you know, traditional 19th century, early 20th century drama, you don't have people using the bathroom, for example. <laughs> and recycling feels like the climate change equivalent of that, which is like it's a kind of mundane part of everyday life. But it's come as a sort of, become a sort of something that we use as a metaphor as a, a figure of, of, of the topic um, and actually I think the challenge is to think about what the what the values are like like for me for example the the idea that time's running out and that as a species we are no longer imagining our futures because actually we would rather live in a kind of a, a kind of carbon glut of the present that becomes theatrical and and interesting because it's about who we are as people like we kind of I've uh, I feel like you could say you know we know but we do not act mm. and that's a kind of classic tragedy situation of tragedy which is that you can see the problem but we're not doing anything about it or nowhere near enough um the challenge of course is that actually this isn't just like a set of stories this is real life <laughs> and if we don't sort the, sort out our use of carbon quite quickly we're going to be in trouble and that's as you say where it gets more difficult because the the process of uh you know just reducing you know making a theater more efficient is uh, in terms of its use of electricity those kinds of things are kind of but i guess that's a, a sort of building manager question or i mean being asked to work differently so you might work different hours mm. uh 
is interesting. It's always interesting for the creative process to rethink your model of working. And if it asks us to do that, then that's really useful, I think. I suppose, do you think we need to be more militant about it as an industry and, and just simply say no to some creative ideas if we know that those creative ideas are detrimental to the environment? It depends, doesn't it? Because I think it's important to be thinking about what it means. So when we made Thurging Out, which um, we performed all over the place, but including um, by the Greenwich Observatory uh, in the uh, Greenwich and Docklands International Festival a few years ago, we managed to out the electricity in the observatory because the it was in shipping containers they got very hot so it was like a heat it was a heat wave on top of a hill uh and uh, so we you know so they brought in some fans <laughs> it's like the opposite of climate friendly <laughs> and it was a show about a climate crisis uh set in 2033 where the where the theater space actually became as hot as the projected temperatures <laughs> because of the, because of the present heat wave um and i suppose there's a sort of sense in which i would argue for the embrace of of a kind of theater of hypocrisy or complicity in which we understand that we're complicit in the culture and we are the culture that we are living in now and addressing it doesn't necessarily mean being different from or, or in inverted commas better than everybody else because that's when it starts to the theatre can't really um, it can li- like the, the, the ways in which it can lead the way are by just doing things differently it seems to me and and showing that it can be done but as soon as you go well you can't do a creative idea because of mm. x it's like actually going well what are the i mean you know you have budget limitations so you so you could say okay there's a carbon budget limitation we need to rethink it and actually those processes for rethinking often make the work better like no idea is the best idea at the beginning it's always better through a process of negotiation discussion collaboration limitation because that's where you get to, I mean, you, you talk about a kind of economy and making work as well and that's where I think that figures so I think there's ways in which that could be thought of as creative rather than as a sacrifice mm. or as a, as a diminishment of, of the creative process Well, collaboration takes me nicely back to dramaturgy because I'm, I'm still really interested in this you, you use quite a poetic um, definition of dramaturgy uh, which, which you describe it as dark then light then dark again what does that mean, though? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, it's because dramaturgy is all about rhythm. So um, that's a quote from Hildegard de Wiest, who's a, 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 a Dutch dramaturg. And um, it, it's about rhythm and it's about change. So if, you, if something's dark and then it goes light, you notice. And it goes dark again, you go, oh, is it a pattern? And then if it keeps going light and dark in the same rhythm, you stop noticing it. But if you change the pattern, then you'll start noticing it again. And I think of dramaturgy as being a structure of attention. It's, it's organising or, um, yeah, framing how the audience pay attention, who they pay attention to in terms of characters, what the type of, the way they pay attention, whether it's to the whole scene or whether it's to a specific character and how that shifts. Um, and, and that is built through all of the different elements of theatre that we have at our disposal so it's about light but it's also about sound if you change how they relate to one another you change the way the audience pay attention something might be funny or um, upsetting just through those kinds of calibrations when you put a a really brilliant actor into them in in, within all that and allow those elements to interplay then you get something really completely extraordinary Um, and actors can do that themselves in terms of how acting works. It's it, th- those kinds of 
rhythmic structures spatially as well how space is used as well as as well as as rhythmically and so the dark then light then dark again seems to encapsulate all of that that <laughs> makes way. sense i see that and to use a, a football analogy perhaps if if there's a director of football who is the dramaturg and uh, they have to work very closely with the football manager, the, the director. They kind of have to know exactly what the what the manager wants, what the manager's vision is. Do you have to really know what the director is seeing for for his or her or their production um, to, to work alongside them? Do you see what I mean? Do you have to really under be on on the same track as the as the director? I. So I start. I think I start working with the directors that I work with at the point where they're investigating the. Um, investigating the text so the so the ideas evolve in collaboration so they might have a very very specific idea um but it isn't necessarily i don't know how to put like we use this word vision a lot i don't think you can get inside someone else's head and see their vision so my vision might often be quite different um for example with joe he thinks very psychologically often and i think very socially and we discuss and look at things in different ways and and we often map things spatially or we walk the space to kind of think about it and so it's in those it's in the different ways of looking at it and thinking and understanding that we and we're also really interested in understanding exactly what the play is actually doing um rather than just imposing a an idea on it so the ideas often emerge out of what the situation of the play seems to be so i i i don't think i anyway myself could kind of do that work of second guessing someone else's creativity and then trying to help them achieve it the way that i work with the directors that i work with is to be another voice in the room who is co-imagining the, the work itself so it's the autonomy between you and say joe hill gibbons which which complements the the work rather than any similarities well a combination mm. i think we have very similar tastes mm. in terms of humor and and um a, a kind of sense of dark darkness <laughs> actually <laughs> yeah we've got well, you're also on the changeling as well yeah, you? yeah 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 so, yeah. Yeah. so uh, we but certainly um there's a shorthand there in terms of we're not we're often if we if we're coming at something from very differently then it's usually worth our working out how and why because it will mean that there's something in it that is interesting and Zoe, what about what you're working on at the Young Vic at the moment uh, with Shakespeareonomics? What is that? Well, interestingly enough, that came out of a conversation with Paul Mason, who I know has also recently done another one of these podcasts, um, that came about as a result of him seeing World Factory, the show that I, I did here, where we were talking about uh, capitalism and, and how to understand it. And he was talking to me about the uh, the Shakespeare history plays and the way that they pattern the emergence of capitalism was moved from the feudal the feudal world into capitalism, and I found that completely intriguing because I had never thought of Shakespeare in that way before. And he sent me a a, a list of questions you might ask of a character to find out whether they're a feudal character or a capitalist character. Uh, and I took this and did a workshop with about 12 uh, emerging directors on the Directors Network where we really crunched those questions. We developed them, opened up new ones, asked them of lots of different plays, tried to work out. So we've kind of developed this tool for um, working out what the economic structure is 
of a of a Shakespeare play. So you can see how the ca- characters are relating to one another economically, and it's brilliant. It shows up so many different kind of ways of looking at characters, like in terms of them, them, their emotional backgrounds, their relationships to one another. It's like even if you're not interested in economics, it's kind of brilliant. Um, but I'm also interested in whether there's a way of making uh, a show of about that. At the moment, we're this week, we're looking at a kind of rough edit of Shakespeare's history plays to look at how you might think about them uh, showing those kind of economic shifts. And it's sort of, it's very strongly linked with the future work that I'm doing about the sort of future beyond capitalism, because there's a kind of intercapitalism and out of, again, element, which is that, is that sort of understanding what the boundaries of capitalism might be might yeah, understanding what a feudal person is like and how that's represented and, and what that kind of culture looks like might help us think about what the forms of performance might be beyond and capitalism. Why Shakespeareonomics, not Chekhovonomics or Obscenonomics or Brechtonomics? Or... It's because of the period of time that he was writing. So he was writing just as, as um, capitalism was really becoming frenzied in terms of the way the city was 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 operated operating Shakespeare himself was a, an amazing you know, capitalist as soon as he had any money he just bought land all around <laughs> Stratford and uh, you know made, made made money from it and but also the, the the stories in the plays are so rich and if you look at what we've been looking at today is um, the, the difference between Richard II and uh, Henry V uh, with Henry the Fourth kind of bridging the, the those two, but Richard the Second cannot imagine who he'd be if he wasn't king. So his situation and his self are the same thing. There's no gap between his role and his identity, and when the gap's forced on him, he, he, he can't understand it. Whereas Hal, who's going to become Henry the Fifth, is a um, Hal's this kind of mercurial figure who says right in the first scene that you see him in at the end of the scene so it's a scene with Falstaff he's carousing in the inn and he says I'm just hanging out with these guys while I'm waiting to become king and partly so that everyone just thinks I'm a rascal and when I become king they're going to think I'm amazing because I'll be so brilliant and I'll be such a brilliant king and it's like a real kind of goal setting kind of capitalist strategic (laughs) you know he knows he wants to be CEO but he's going to surprise everybody um and you know it's a monologue to the audience, whereas Richard's uh, monologues are reflective. They're in response to circumstances. Hal sets up the circumstances. He makes things happen. He he changes things. Um, and so it's really interesting to see the difference between those two characters. You suddenly see, oh yeah, this is a different way of looking at the character and the way that they're written, the way they're represented. So. Yeah, so Shakespeare's really very rich for that. Interestingly, Chekhov's really interesting, could be interesting too, because all his characters, or lots of his characters, see work as the saviour, especially female characters. And there's, lot, there's quite a few female characters, not just by Chekhov, also in George Bernard Shaw, and even Nora in, in The Doll's House, Ibsen. You know, work, um, economic independence, becomes the emancipatory gesture. Um, so yeah, so it's interesting. So the work on the Shakespeare Nomics actually opens up lots of questions about other other plays as well. And Zoe, are you allowed to tell us about any exciting projects that uh, you've got uh, up your sleeve? Well, I'm uh, working on a piece that's probably going to be a kind of performance installation at the uh, Barbican in the Pit next September, so September 2018, that's emerging out of a residency that I've 
had with a couple of other artists exploring future scenarios of climate change. And what I'm looking at is alternative economic structures. And we're going to build a kind of lab in which we will try to imagine what it might be like to actually live in a different economy. Oh, so fantastic. not just like what the expert ideas are, although I've been consulting with lots of experts um, about that, uh, but to take those expert ideas, of which there are many, many, many kind of wonderful, wonderful ideas, and also to think about full automation and carbon, you know, thinking about carbon budgets and how that would change how we operated and things like universal basic income, create a scenario and then try and work out like who we would be. Because it seems to me that's the kind of barrier to living differently is that might be critical of capitalism but we kind of know who we are we recognize a trump figure we recognize that self-interest or that that form of gaining power but if the structure is different like what would it what would success mean what would failure mean who would we be and so we're going to attempt this experiment um yeah next year well that sounds really interesting i'm really looking forward to seeing that and zoe spenson thank you very much for coming in this afternoon thank you Thank you for joining us for this episode of Off Book by The Young Vic. If you'd like to hear more conversations with some of the most exciting people in theatre, subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes.